Welcome to the Word Search Podcast with Bible teacher and author Rob Price. Each topic and series on Word Search is designed to encourage your personal journey into the treasures and truths inside the Scriptures. Word Search is produced by RP Media, a leader in faith-based podcasts. Before I start, I thought I would take us through a little, as a way of metaphor, take us through some horrible prequels. There are three films in particular that I think might be the worst prequels in the history of cinema. And one of them is actually a trilogy. Can we all agree that Star Wars 1, 2, and 3 were pretty horrible? You had bad CGI. You had Jar Jar Banks, Hayden Christensen as Anakin. Another one which should have been better was a really bad prequel was the whole Hobbit trilogy. Have you watched these films? They're just like five hours long each. It was so, so long. And just, just move on, Peter Jackson. And then this next one was really, really good. The first one that came out was so funny. And then they tried to do it again. Hollywood always messes it up. You remember the film Dumb and Dumberer? <laughs> they had different actors that Jim Carrey wasn't in it, nor was Jeff Daniels. They got two other actors, and it was just it was horrible. It was stupid, yeah. It was stupid and stupider. But there's some home run prequels that I found that I like. One of them was The Godfather 2, number two, right? This came out in 1974. This is about Vito Corleone's young history before he became the Godfather. And then one of my favorite recent prequels is back to Star Wars, Rogue, uh, Rogue One 2016. Why I like that one so much is because it goes right into the very next scene was the opening scene of Star Wars 4. It took you right to the very next frame of video, of a film. And it was just so good how they sacrificed their life for the cause and all that. And then one more came out a year after that, before there was a Justice League. Come on, ladies. Give it up for Wonder Woman. Come on. It was a good movie. It was a good movie. You have the bracelets, Sheila? You got the bracelets? Do you know there's a prequel in Scripture? There's a, there, there, there's a film, if you could say, made in Scripture, even before Scripture. It, it pred- in fact, it predates Genesis. And it's an incredible story that taps into the very heart of God, the Godhead, the, the, the Trinity. And so, as a metaphor, I brought my son's stethoscope. We're going to attempt to do heart surgery today into the very nature of God. Like, who is he in relation to our topic? Um, I I wrote down here, it's a love story. Uh, It's got tension. It's got drama. Even, oddly enough, death. And this story has to be told because it has implications for our lives today. So the name of the prequel is the name of your topic on your first page is the, the Everlasting Covenant. I made like a cheesy movie, movie, movie poster <laughs> starring or directed by Yahweh, screenplay by Yahweh. <laughs> so a couple blanks and notes to get into. Let's start with what does the word everlasting mean, okay? I gave you some that I leave, leave a couple blanks for you. And the word in the Hebrew is olam, and it means antiquity in, de- in an indefinite future. Permanent. Also, forever and ever. You could keep saying forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. The Hebrew word 
covenant actually changes, this is interesting, from, remember we learned lesson one, berit, 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 berit-ish, the cutting. The, but there's five times in scripture that it changes from berit to, with an L, like an L, libret, libret. And it, what it does, it, it refers to three times, it refers to, in your next blank, it refers to an everlasting covenant. Is that a blank or not? I'm not sure if it's a blank. It is? Okay, good. Next to the phrase everlasting covenant, write down these three, Genesis 17, verse 7, verse 13, verse 19. I'll say it again. Look them up later. Genesis 17, verse 7, verse 13, verse 19. Libret, and it's referencing the Abrahamic covenant. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that later, hopefully, if we have time in this, in this next few weeks. But two times it refers to, this is interesting, to be a covenant. Isaiah 42 and verse 6. Write that down, Isaiah 42, verse 6. And write down Isaiah 49, verse 8. I'll read these two. These are just most interesting. Isaiah is looking into the future. Many times God would drop a little prophetic bomb into Isaiah's brain, and Isaiah would see Jesus. He would see the Savior. And Isaiah wrote these words, and the whole chapter 42 is about the servant of the Lord. And it says in verse 6, uh, I'll back up a bit, I, I the Lord, have, have called you in righteousness. I'll take hold of your hand. Here it is. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison. Jesus Christ be the covenant. <laughs> he is personify covenant. Isaiah 49, not in your notes, Isaiah 49, verse 8. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. In the day of salvation, I'll help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. Say to the captives, come out to those in darkness, be free. So, Labrit, be, be, covenant, it's covenantal words. Okay. So, the, another word, though, in the Greek, it comes over as eternal. These are kind of synonym words, eternal. A blank there, look at it, it's, it means, uh, I won't pronounce it right, Ionios, I think, age-long, the Bible says there is an everlasting and eternal covenant. In fact, I put in my notes here, it is, it's a covenant within the Trinity himself. This clue, this covenant gives us clues to the absolute nature and essence of God. God's not some genie in the sky. He's not, he's not your personal vending machine. The Godhead is... Awesome, awe, awe-inspiring, right? It's awesome, it's incredible. We're gonna discover that he doesn't just make covenants, I'll say it again, he doesn't just cut covenants, he, get it, he is covenant. It's the foundation of our salvation. So, I teach screenwriting students at SAGU what makes a good film and what makes a bad film. It's plot points, gang. When, why you like good films is a reason why. Because writers know what they're doing. And they call them beats. There's actually 15 beats in any film. Just from memory, I wrote some down here, like by page five or minute five. Because in screenplays, a page is about a minute, so I'll use those interchangeably. By minute five, a theme is stated. 
a thesis. This is just extra stuff here. In any good film, like, you know, family's more important than money. It's just a passing comment around the dinner table. But the rest of the film sets out to prove or disprove that theme. So by page, by minute five, you already know what the film's about subconsciously. By minute 12 of a film, there's called the catalyst moment, the inciting incident. It's when Luke Skywalker is out in the desert and he meets Obi-Wan and out pops his computer droid with a little Princess Leia saying, help me, I'm really hope, <laughs> right? So that's like uh, a change, a, a shift, a change, a, a, new, a new opportunity. Minute 12, go watch the film. Right around minute 12, it happens. Minute 25, the break into act two. You make a decision to go on the journey. You leave the behind the old, go into the new. The everlasting covenant has beats, has three, at least three beats I want to teach you. <clears throat> Beat number one, the everlasting covenant film does not appear in act one of human history. Adam didn't take his first breath as a sinner in the Garden of Eden, the need of a covenant. Nor does God mention covenant in the garden. It's inferred, but this everlasting covenant's not mentioned. But the provision for our salvation was already in place. So I'm going to need some help now. We're going to read five scriptures in the next few minutes. I'm going to prove to you this statement, that the everlasting covenant does not appear in Act 1 of human history, meaning... Genesis 1.1, as far as we know. Dave, why don't you read this next one? Uh, 2 Timothy 1, verse 9 and 10. Ready? Read. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed to the appearance of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Okay. Quiz for those who were here for week one or two. Where's the covenantal phrase in that scripture? It's real simple. It's a small little word, remember? In Christ, thank you, in Christ Jesus, in, 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 in Christ Jesus. Before the beginning of time, I pull it out in yellow. Before the beginning of time, let that phrase just like melt your mind for a second. Before time began, but it's now been revealed, now, now, now revealed through the appearing, the appearing of our Savior. We were made ready to be redeemed before we were even born. Okay? Our sin did not take God by surprise. I want you to feel the weight of that. Okay? And we go right into, into Titus. Who else did I pick to be a reader? Mr. Edwards. Titus 1 and verse 2. You can read from the screen or from the notes. Yeah. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of everlasting life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Boom. Stop. There it is again. Pause. There it is again. Same, same uh, writer, Paul. Titus and Timothy. Paul's getting some revelation. Something, something, something happens back before the beginning of time. It's like Paul, when he went to the third heaven, he, God showed him something, and God permitted him to write it down, sprinkle it in Timothy, and Titus, we'll see some other verses that Peter picked up on it, before the beginning of time. Keep going, and that. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through preaching. So, this thing happens. It does not appear before Act 1. It does not appear in Act 1. Something happened, gang, before time began that involves you. Something happened before time began 
that was love towards the potential yet to even exist you. Beat two is the everlasting covenant has two choices. It involves two key choices. And we'll read the scripture to prove to prove this. Who else did I ask to help? Jeff, can you help me out? We're going to read 1 Peter 1, 19 through 20 in just a second. And then Jim Hood, you'll read Ephesians 1, 4 in just a second. See, I'm learning, Sheila. Jim Hood. It's not just Jim. It's not just Jim. It's Jim Hood. Jim Hood. <laughs> okay. The two, there's two choices. So pay careful attention. Put your eyes on the scripture as you hear it read. Ready? Jeff, go. First Peter 1, 19 through 20. Ready? Read. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Okay. You said this. He was chosen. He was chosen. Chosen. The Greek word, don't write it down. I'm going to move on quickly. But it, it means it's pro, progenosko. Progenosko. I'll just tell you what it means. Don't worry about it. Pro, ahead, before. Gnosko. Nosko. Nosko. Knowledge. Gnostics. Knowledge. It's the Greek word where we get knowledge. Before knowledge. Pro, it was chosen predestined. You could say predestined. Before Genesis 1-1, something was chosen. He was chosen. The pre-incarnate Jesus was picked was picked out of the Godhead to take on flesh and blood so he could one day be the covenant. The, the, the Brit. You're going to be the covenant. There's another, there's another chosen. Ephesians 1.4. Who's, who's reading Ephesians 1.4? Okay, go. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Two words again. He chose. He chose us. The Godhead. He. So Jesus, who was chosen. Look, look, look at your at your at your sheet. He was chosen. First Peter. But then he chose us in him. I thought it'd be the same word. It's not. The Greek word is eklego, like Legos. <laughs> eklego. Ek, and it, it's not. It's not the pro, progenosko. Eklego means means to pick out for myself. There were four or five candies. I like I like these are smarties. I like smarties. I just picked that one out. I pulled it out. It was selected, elected, chosen. Eklego. What's ek sound like? Those who ek ek ecclesia ek ecclesia. The, the called out ones, the chosen ones. The ecclesia is called the church. The Greek word for church is the ecclesia. The the called out ones, the picked out ones. I'll take you, and I'll take you, and I'll pick you and you. Eklego, you, by faith, were chosen. He chose, he, cho he pulled, picked you out in him before the creation of the world. Not when you were age six going down to the altar. But, go back to the movie theme, we all love plot twists, right? What are some of the great plot twists in history? The most obvious one, I just can't get off Star Wars today, is Empire Strikes Back, when we, audiences learn, straight from Vader's mouth, the famous words, no, Luke, I am your father. I was watching as a 10-year-old in the movie like, no, no, stop the film, no. 
And the film just kept going on. And Luke was going, no, as he fell to his potential death. What a plot twist. Have y'all seen, um, have y'all seen The Sixth Sense with M. Night Shyamalan? Yeah. Creepy. Yeah. Stars Bruce Willis. Um, the plot twist there, sorry, uh, spoiler alert if you've already not seen the film, but we learned that Bruce Willis's character, Dr. Malcolm Crow, has been virtually dead the entire film. He never actually, like, he never actually, they never actually interacted. He's looking past him and talking through him, and it's, you watch it a second time, you realize, oh my gosh, he's been dead the entire time. He was, this is all these scenes, but it's a plot twist. And the third one, this came out last year, the most recent one getting buzz. When I told us that Sagu, they were just losing their mind. This is a Spider-Man No Way Home. Remember this plot twist? I'll, read, I'll remind you what it is. When all three Spider-Men from all prior films show up, the same real actors at the same time in the same scene, and they all take out the bad guys, right? But the everlasting covenant, oh, it gives humanity the greatest plot twist ever. Any ideas what you think it is? Maybe the notes gave it away, but think, let me hear from you for a second. What do you think is the greatest plot twist ever in the everlasting covenant? There's, there's a hint in Hebrews and in Romans on your notes. What's the, what's the hint? Raised from the dead. 100%. So I'll read this one. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says this. May the God of peace who through the blood of the everlasting covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus. I put in my notes here, this is the key verse that puts it all together right here. May the God of peace, oh, we've heard that peace word before. That's a covenant word. That long list I gave you in week one or two. The Greek word, it's not your notes, just just. Just listen to me. It's I, I, Irene, yeah, Irene, Irene. It means to bind or tie together as a whole. That sounds very covenantal. It means when all the essential parts are joined together, you have peace. And the key plot twist is brought back from the dead, a dead man raised. So, Look at, look at Romans 8, 11, okay? We'll see here, the everlasting covenant had the power to physically re-energize the dead, cold body of a human being, Jesus. No doctor made a house call <laughs> to a heart defib. And the Bible says this in Romans 8, 11, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead, dwelleth in you. That word dwell means to abide. It means to take up permanent residence. I'm going to hit that later in the later weeks, what it means to abide in a vine. You dwell in him. You, you don't stay for a while. You live, you dwell, you permanent residence in him. If that happens, he lives in you, then he that raised up Christ from the dead shall, here it is, shall quicken, quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. This is a great prayer verse. What, what, what I like to do is speak God's word back to him. God, the Bible says God is watching over his word to perform it. 
Who, who's speaking my word? Who's declaring my word? Who's putting faith in my word? He's listening, listening, listening. So here's a great verse. You say, Lord, would you just, I know we're all going to one day die and pass away. We're bodies are decaying. We get that. But would you just, would you just give Jeff, he's hurting, he's sick. Would you just give him a little, a little taste of your resurrection power? Would you just quicken his body, raise him up to health, quicken his mortal body, resurrect the dead cells and make him alive again. Just give him a little, a little taste of what it's going to be like when he has a fully resurrected body. Okay, let's go back to the script now, because this is my attempt at uh, some of the key lines in the screenplay of this prequel to try to break down the subtext of this divine dialogue. So I'm going to try to get some heart surgery here with, with uh, some creative license. So we've seen with Paul and Peter, some Bible writers seem to pick up on the everlasting covenant. I think David also saw a bit of it here. So I'll just read this to you for time. Uh, exterior large grass pasture day. David watches over several dozen sheep as they meander and graze the fields. The sun shines its warm rays down upon the valley. David pulls out a crude stringed instrument from a satchel bag. His eyes look upward. He plays with gentle precision. Then David says, you know the verse, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. This is an astonishing verse. Why did the Lord inspire David to use these two terms, fearfully and wonderfully? I think that's the next blanks in, in your sheet. Let's look at them. The word wonderful, wonderfully, Hebrew means, it, the word is pala, P-A-L-A-H, pala, and it means distinct, distinguished, and your blank, it means marked out. You've been marked out, almost like the picked out again, right? You've been marked, you've been set apart in this screenplay, God will release, you got to catch this, a unique part of himself to every unique person in that existence. Okay, so he, he will release or create a unique part of himself and put it in every unique person in that existence. So what I do is, I, ha I have an illustration here. Everybody ever seen this? Have you ever used Photoshop or Illustrator? or Canva, or you just you're involved with art at all, video, video production. This is called a color, a color picker wheel, okay? Very common in the digital media world. So I want you to take a look at that and pick out one spot. Are you deep dark blue, medium shade of blue? Are you aqua blue? Are you kind of just barely white green? Are you chroma key green? Are you or pick? I mean, I'm looking at the screen now. There are, wow, there, I, can see, I, can see the, I can see the pixels. I can see each pixel. There are thousands and thousands. Well, in God's eyes, let's say billions and billions and billions of people who have been born on the earth. You, there it is. If I pulled one pixel out. It's like a light orange. You are one of those unique pixels. It's as if when God made Nevaeh, picked out a pixel in all of God's image and likeness, so I'm going to make Nevaeh look like this, feel like this, have these, these uh, talents, skills, the heart to know me, how she looks, how he's shaped, how her brain works, her joys, her sorrows, and I'm going to pick it out and say, now, <laughs> and go and express 
that part of me to the world in a way that nobody else can ever do. You are uniquely, you are fearfully and wonderfully made in his image, in his likeness. Could this be why God says, I will make every man give an account for his life? Did you express me to the world? Did you try to do your own thing? What did you do with I and we that we placed in you? We, the Godhead, made Sam to live in the state you did, that the family you did, the skills you have, the mind, the heart, the passion, the way to express God's love to one another. And when he stands before God on judgment day, he will give an account of every day of his life. The books will be opened. And we're going to figure out how well you reflected the very Zoe life of God that you was uniquely placed in Sam. And he's responsible to express that part of God to the entire world. So David also used the word fearfully. And the word there is Y-A-R-E. I'll pronounce it wrong. Yare, I guess. And it means to cause astonishment and awe. This does not mean God is afraid of us. Fearfully, wonderful me, fearfully. This does not mean God is afraid of us. It's more like he's afraid for us. Why? Why did God create you with such awe and reverence? We find the answer in another theme from this timeless screenplay. God, I, I suggest to you for your consideration, God is slightly afraid for you. He made you fearfully. Because in theme number two of this screenplay, The Everlasting Covenant, God will permit the possibility of sin to enter that existence. You cannot shower true love on a puppet, on Pinocchio. This mankind whom God is going to create is not Pinocchio. The tree of the knowledge, there's the picture, of good and evil was there for a reason. Man must choose God. As he was chosen and he chose us in him, God, the holy hush, like, are we going to do this? We're going to make a man who could freely not choose us. We are hardwired to have free will. So I got back to my mind and I wrote more of the screenplay, what I think could have happened. The throne room, angels, cherubim, seraphim, and other living creatures worship in wonder at the warmth of love extending from within the Trinity. In numbers beyond measure, the heavenly host appears to be moving in unison in a large loop that nears the throne then extends away. A large swell of angels approach the Trinity's throne. Overwhelmed at the weight of his glory, they fall down on their faces. The Father, Son, and Spirit appear all as dancing together. Three and one, one and three. Suddenly the father sways away from the son and the spirit and the sounds of cherubim singing fades into the background. And a holy hush among the Godhead. What is it, father? This is, this is too good. What, what do you mean we're too good? Compared to what? Our glory has no beginning and no end. Let's invite another to come inside. 
to join us. But the, the seraphim and, and, and the, the, the cherubim and a myriad of angels, they're, they're all right here with us. They don't live inside of us. They cannot feel the rhythm of our dance. If we do this, what would this mean? You know what it would mean. I know. We would be making a creature who would know us face to face, yet could reject us. This is all happening in the heart of the Trinity. Before he said, let us make man in our image. There had to be a deliberation. He could walk away from our everlasting life. The, the father's eyes then peer deep into the heart of his son. Both of them smile. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? A tear falls from the son's face. It sparkles down his cheek like a radiant liquid diamond. The tear appears to be living. Here am I. Send me. I will take on their flesh and their blood. I will cut the blood covenant for them and as them. What have I just given to you? God will not allow himself to keep himself to himself. God will not allow himself to keep himself to himself. It's as if God said, we've got to let someone else in. We are too good. And it wasn't an arrogant statement. He was literally saying, this we have is too good to just keep among ourselves. The Bible says in Hebrews, even angels long to look into these things. The angels were not, can I say died for? I didn't say it right, but the, the, the blood of Jesus did not pay for the sins of angels. Fallen angels are damned to eternal hell. Why, why did he do this? Was he bored with himself? Was he bored with the angels? Did he want someone to boss around? <laughs> no. Why did God then create you? He is completely self-sufficient, Sheila. You know, we know God is completely self-sufficient. He doesn't, he doesn't need you. So why did he create you? He just, he just wanted to. <laughs> but he did it fearfully. And wonderfully, because he knew if we're going to make something with free will and we know they're going to rebel, it's going to cost the Godhead something. God does not sweep sin under the rug. He doesn't wink at sin. He cannot allow it within the dance of the Trinity. He has to atone for it. He has to take care of it. So what shall it cost them? The Bible says in Acts 20 and verse 28, not in your notes, it's going to cost the very blood of God. It's the only time in Scripture where I found where the word blood in the New Testament is not connected with blood of Jesus, blood of Christ, blood of the new covenant. It's the only time it actually says the very blood of God. Be shepherds of the church of God's flock, which he bought with his own blood. And now we come to the third theme, new content for you, if you have your blanks. In the everlasting covenant, God, catch this, will use himself as a blood covenant representative for both the Trinity and us, mankind. Godhead 
son of God, Jesus. Mankind, he's also called the son of man. Blood, blood, principle of bloodshed, bloodshed, bloodshed. It's taught to the Israelites early and later to the New Testament saints in two key verses. I think it's in your handouts, but I want to read them just to feel the weight of these words. These are some of my two favorite passages in, 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 in the scripture, okay? Let's just put our eyes on them and let the Holy Spirit give you his own commentary. Life is in the blood, and it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life, the propitiation, the payment for the cost to redeem, a life for a life, right? And then in Hebrews, the writer picks it up, this, this same theme, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It's just the rules that God has set up. Life must pay for rebellion. God will not allow sin inside the heart of the Trinity. So let's look at why divinity even is a trinity. Any covenant promise requires two people, two tribes, remember farmers and warriors, two nations, two families, and a mediator, someone that will oversee the covenant to make sure that the terms are kept. The promises of the everlasting covenant were made between God the Father and God the Son. So, was this, quote, promise before time began made directly to us? The promise was not made directly to us. It was made between the Father and the Son. We have here what I call the Mephibosheth maxim. <laughs> we were included into this covenant. Just like Mephibosheth was included into the covenant with David and Jonathan. But we're still free creatures, free will creatures. So it does require something of us to enter. It requires faith. But we're missing something here. We've got Father. We've got Son. We're missing a key person. Where, where does that leave the Holy Spirit? What role does he play? He is the mediator or the overseer of the everlasting covenant. He ensures the covenant is kept. Without the divinity, friends, being a trinity, there is no covenant. Without no covenant, there's no hope of salvation. His very DNA of who he is ensures our salvation. And so the prequel ends in Genesis 1.1. I have one more little line dialogue for you. The Godhead looks across what they have created over the last five days. Pure joy and delight. Dawn rises over the Garden of Eden. It is the sixth day. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all smile in unison. And then the ultimate pregnant pause. The triune God says the words we all know. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. They thought about it, and I say this loosely, before time began, this thing that happened, six, seven verses, five, six, seven verses that we've looked at last week and a half, 
this blood of the covenant, before time began, something was sealed. It's been ruminated, thought about, but now he's vocalizing it. He's saying it. Let us make man our image and our likeness. The Hebrew word is salem, salem, T-S-E-L-E-M. It means form, something cut out. You are cut out. You, there's a resemblance so form, something cut out, a resemblance. You are made in his image. You image him. You also are like him. The Hebrew word there is demuth, D-E-M-U-T-H. Similitude or similar. A figure, a fashion, or a shape. When they said, let us make man, they said, let's make something that fits us that resembles us. They'll be fashioned as us. I think, on a side note, I think this is why the enemy of our soul, Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call him, looks at human beings and despises you. Because all he sees is image likeness, image likeness, image likeness, image likeness, image likeness, image likeness, unique image likeness, image likeness, image likeness, unique, 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 image likeness, image likeness, image likeness. He hates God. He hates you. That's why he wants to do three things. Steal, come on, kill, and destroy you. Steal, kill, destroy their image and likeness of God on the earth. He despises humanity. So I found a, another passage. It's kind of a preview of the, maybe the next film, right? 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 10. I'll read bits and pieces of it. We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory. And I found it again before time began. And it's within the same context, just a few verses later, maybe the next verse after that you skip one verse, it says, no eye has seen, you know these, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived. I think King James says, nor has, nor has entered the heart of man. The things God has prepared for those who love him. Okay, those who choose to enter the dance. Will you enter? But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. We're getting more and more information as we move, the Bible says, from glory to glory to glory. His presence, His word, worship, loving others. Well, that, friends, is my analysis of the most mysterious covenant in Scripture, the everlasting covenant. 